This message first aired on the radio on March 5th, 2004. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're in the 12th verse today, and we're going to cover probably the remainder of this whole first chapter, and possibly part of the second chapter as well. We have some important things to talk about today, so we'll get right to it as the apostle begins now to defend himself. He's laid out the conditions of his life. If you were with us in the previous message, if you listen to that, the first 11 verses, you see how urgent he was and how important it was that the Corinthians be not ignorant concerning the conditions of his life, the manner of his ministry, and what it was really to bring the word of God out. And things haven't changed. There's still a great spiritual conflict around the delivery of God's word. Well, now the apostle is going to talk about what they know, and then he's going to begin what I call his pathetic defense of himself, his pathetic but necessary uh, defense of himself, beginning with the uh, most mundane and with the most outrageous accusations against him, as we'll read underneath the text when we come to it. But first, let's look at verse 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation, or our manner of life, in the world, and more abundantly to you, or to you word, or towards you. Now, this 12th verse leaves us with a number of things to examine, and he really is putting a heading on the following conversation, but he's pointing out the relationship uh, between himself and the Corinthians, and he's doing this as a manner of defense. And here this word rejoicing, I think we might mistake it if we don't take it apart a little bit. He says, our rejoicing is this, and the testimony of our conscience, or in other words, the testimony of our conscience is this. Now, rejoicing, this really is the word for boasting, and it's used here, the apostle uses it in the best sense. Of course, there is the kind of egotistical and arrogant boasting that is fleshly, but then there is the spiritual boasting, that is to say, this This is our headline. This is our banner. This is the way by which we name ourselves or characterize ourselves. Instead of saying, I'm the greatest, he says, here's our boasting, exact same thing as the testimony of our conscience. Now, this is an unusual manner of life. This is an unusual statement, and this is a very plain statement. He says, I don't boast in myself. I don't boast in my work that I have to do, but here is my boasting. In fact, my boasting is the testimony of my conscience, and of course, he has a good conscience. I think conscience is very much overlooked today. I think that we don't look after our own consciences very well, and we certainly don't look after the consciences of others. I'm amazed as I go from day to day that I find so many bad conscience and that men and women today, uh, Christians and non-believers alike, of course, do not maintain a good conscience and are walking around self-condemned. There is no reason for a Christian to walk around in a self-condemned state, but in Corinth, of course, there were quite very many who were divisive people, dividing up the brethren, and those people, we learn from Titus chapter 3, are self-condemned people. We have very many people with bad consciences today, despite the fact, brother and sister, that you began your Christian life with a good conscience. When you're born again, you're given a new nature, your sins are really forgiven, 
and you are given a good conscience. And then we have the wonderful practice of water baptism, immersion, whereby we answer with a good conscience back toward God. From there on, having a good conscience, we need to maintain a good conscience. Uh, When we sin, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and we have fellowship with God. And that is only kept in a good conscience. Of course, faith must be had in a good conscience also. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. You'll only hear the Word of God if you have a good conscience. You can tune into a broadcast, you can read the Bible, but except you have a good conscience, you'll not hear the Word of God. So notice that our pattern center here, the Apostle Paul, his boasting, his banner, he could say in all sincerity, he could say, here's the testimony of my conscience that without guile or in simplicity and godly sincerity. Now we have two other characteristics that mark the Apostle Paul. This first one, I think, also is missing very much today. And it's unusual, actually both these characteristics, very much today, unusual to find in a person. And by the way, when we find them, we don't necessarily find these pleasant or like them. It depends on our own spiritual condition how much we like these two characteristics. The first one is called simplicity in the King James Version but it really means guileless or without guile. That is to say, now guile is that representation that people do when they have one agenda and they talk a different way about it. They are interested in fooling you, in fooling you. It's guile. That is, what do you, what does he really think? What does he really mean? What is he really saying with that statement? Today, people consider themselves clever. There is even an art of the ambiguous statement. But ambiguity in statements is not of God. Ambiguity of statement, especially as practiced, is demonic. Precision statement, clear statement, unquestionable statement, statements that are very direct and mean only one thing. Those are what God desires. This was how the apostle was. He was straightforward. He was blunt, even. He was guileless. Now, that doesn't mean tactless, but it does mean guileless. That is to say, you lay aside any manipulation or any opportunity to manipulate, and you speak directly what it is that you mean. This is a practice, and it's not well practiced in our society, and it's not well commended in our society. We're commended to talk around things. We're commended to be indirect and to hint at things. But that is not of the character of God. That is not how God does. Now, well-spoken, well, a fitting word is like a wonderful thing, the Scripture says. It's like apples of gold and pictures of silver, according to the Scripture. So a fitted word, a carefully spoken word, that's important, but direct. Now, don't expect men to appreciate directness. Don't expect it, because they won't. But the apostle points out that this has to do with character. And one thing he is is direct, and he did not use guile. He did not try to to fool them. He did not try to trick them in any way. That in simplicity, that's what he says. And then God's own sincerity here. Here it says godly sincerity, but this is God's sincerity. This is the sincerity with a possessive of God. That is God's sincerity, or the kind of sincerity that God works in the life. 
Now that's as sincere as you can get. Let me tell you, another quality that's missing today is sincerity. In business, I used to tell uh, salespersons, who, by the way, would like to use guile on prospective customers, and I uh, would have to teach them, no, don't do that. Let me tell you, you can be very straightforward and very direct with people, but sincerity will overcome very many mistakes. People do understand that you're sincere and that you really mean it. So be yourself. That's the most important thing in communicating with people. Be yourself. Well, here the apostle was himself. He was sincere. He never used insincere words, including flatteries or including those things that work other people uh, or pretense. When the apostle Paul was angry with the Corinthians, they knew he was angry. When he was displeased, they knew he was displeased. When he was pleased, they knew he was pleased. So forth. And we call this transparency as a characteristic. So the Christian, just like the apostle Paul, is to be direct and he's to be transparent. And of course, this is the manner of life uh, that Paul had. Here he said, by the grace of God, and of course that's the way he lived, by the grace of God, here in Second Corinthians 1 verse 12, he said, but by the grace of God we have had our conversation in the world. Well, that's not just talking, that's his manner of life. He said, I've lived by grace through faith, this is the way we do, and he says, and more abundantly towards you. That is to say, uh, the grace of God has been more abundant to the Corinthians in light of the apostles' transparency, in light of his directness, in light of his manner of life, certainly been more abundant towards the Corinthians maybe than anybody else, or as much as anyone else. So this now is how he commends himself to them in the 12th verse here. And as you could say at almost every verse, he shouldn't even have to tell him this, but the fact is he does have to tell him this. And we're going to learn some things about people in Second Corinthians. We're going to learn about the apostle, but we're also going to learn something about people. We're going to learn about people that they actually treat those that treat them poorly better than those that treat them well. And the Apostle's going to point that out when we come to that. Well, now we look here at the 13th verse. Now he's pointing out, he says, look, what I write to you, whether it's the previous letter, 1 Corinthians, or whether it's this letter, the things that I write to you, I haven't written anything other than what you've read. You've got the the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Verse 13, we write none of the things unto you than what you read or, and here he says, acknowledge, which really means or deeply know yourselves already. In other words, there are some here in Corinth that are accusing the apostle of being guileful. There are some here in Corinth that are accusing him of withholding information from them. But he tells them point blank, we write nothing unto you other than what you're reading or what you personally deeply know already. That's what that word means here, what you acknowledge. And I trust you shall acknowledge even into the end. Or he says, I trust you will know very deeply until the end. Now, we see here a statement that implies that there are some people here who really know exactly what the apostle's talking about. They've received him as he is. They know about these problems. And then there are apparently others that he has to just dispute in this public letter. Now he says, verse 14, As also you have deeply known us in part. Now there's a statement that's clear enough and should be taken for exactly what it says by the Corinthians. He says, Also you have acknowledged us in part. That is, now in part means either they, well you can't really deeply know somebody and partially know them at the same time. 
what he's saying here is, some of you deeply know me. Others of you apparently don't know me at all because of the kind of things you're accusing me of. That's in here. That's in here. Now you say, well, how do you know that? Well, because I know where this is going. And if you would read 2 Corinthians all the way through, you'll see that that's in here because this epistle reads like birth pangs or like the intensity of a wave that continues to build. He begins here with low intensity, but I can assure you that this epistle is going to grow in intensity and grow in intensity until he lets up. In fact, he is so intense that he begins to explain to them, this is why I haven't come to you yet. I do not want to come to you with the level of intensity and the level of criticism that you need here from this writing. I'm hoping you'll turn around first and then my visit will be much happier. We'll see that here yet today when we come to that part of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So here now he says, some of you, or in part, some of you deeply know us. Some of you deeply know us. Some of you also have deeply known us, or in part, that's what in part means, that we are your rejoicing, even as you are also ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now here we have the day of the Lord Jesus. This is the day of our rendezvous with him. Of course, the day of the Lord Jesus is a protracted period, and it depends who we are, the characteristic of that day. For those who are on the earth, that will be the great and terrible day of the Lord, wherein the Lord Jesus Christ will rise up, all things will be put under his feet, and he'll trample out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. And so we'll see that is for them. But we who are in Christ will be caught up together with those who have slept, and in resurrection we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We'll see that here in the fifth chapter, where he gets more particular about that. But this is the day of the Lord Jesus for us. Our portion of that day is to rendezvous with him, wherein he will now set up his judgment seat, and he'll render to each one of us according to our works. The apostle is saying here, Now we are your boasting today, even as you are ours later in that day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here he's saying, we're your boasting. We're your banner today, those of you who know us well, those of you who deeply know us. We're your rejoicing. We uh, labor abundantly. We deliver the word of God out there, and you're behind us. You're with us. We're your banner. We're your boasting. Those who go to war and those who stay with the stuff will be equally rewarded. They'll be rewarded together because at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ, you are going to to be our boasting at that time. Now, what exactly does he mean here? He says, we're your banner, we're your boasting now, and you're our boasting then. He references the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? Well, unhappily, most of us don't know what he's talking about. That's why we're here at BibleStudy.net. We think we know what he's talking about. We've got some good news about that, but we're going to hold it up for just a minute. I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net. Good stuff when we come back after this brief announcement. So we've asked ourselves the question, what's he talking about? 
He says, as some of you deeply know us, and we are your banner today, and you are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I say our banner, our boasting. What does this mean? What's he talking about? Well, unhappily, I guess we don't necessarily know what he's talking about. And I'm going to get to what he is talking about. But when I tell people some of these things out of the Scripture, uh, simple things like this, we take out verse 14 here and talk about the relationship of the apostle to those that heard him and talk about our rendezvous at the judgment seat of Christ and how things will go and you're our boasting, he's their boasting today and they're his boasting at the judgment seat of Christ. And people say to me, where do you get this stuff? People often say that. And I have to be careful because people say, where do you get this stuff? I get it right out of this Bible that you don't read. I get it right out of this Bible that you don't read. People say, well, you know so much about the Bible. That's very revealing. When you tell me how much I know about the Bible, when I don't know the Bible anywhere near like I should know the Bible, you're revealing more about yourself than me. This would be like me telling Barry Bonds, well, I think you're a really good home run hitter. He has to look at me and say, well, how many home runs have you ever hit in your life? Who are you to tell me what kind of a good home run hitter I am? I would rather hear from someone else like, oh, Mark McGuire or somebody like that. What a good home run hitter I am. Well, let me say, friends, this is right here in your Bible for you to see. And it should not come as any surprise to us why it is that he introduces this subject of his own defense by pointing out to those who know him well that he is for them today and they are for him tomorrow and those who labor together are one even at the judgment seat of Christ. So to follow that up, let's look at what another apostle said. We'll turn to Second John, a very brief epistle of Second John, but has a very important aspect to it as we look at it here in verse 8. Second John, verse 7 and 8. For many deceivers have entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Well, we could talk about that for a while, but we won't. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. This has to do with the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many who deny that Jesus Christ is coming again in the flesh. And if you'll interrogate them, you'll find that out. But now he says something very interesting in verse 8. Look to yourselves, or watch out. That's a warning. Look to yourselves in order that we do not lose those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Now here's what he's saying to them. He's saying, listen here, this is a church. I believe this is a church. It says to the elder unto the elect lady and her children. I do not think that's a woman and her child. I think that's figurative language for a church. And he's saying this. He says, you look to yourselves because we don't want to lose our reward. He says, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Well, where's that reward going to take place? That reward will take place when we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This we'll see in Second Corinthians 5, that we will receive for the things done. We'll receive either good or evil for the things done in the body. Now here, John, the apostle, is warning this group of Christians and saying, Look after yourselves, because we, he and the others that were with him, we don't want to lose our work. We don't want to lose our work, and we want a full reward. And if you don't succeed, we won't succeed. That's what it says. Now, we have also the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, that teaches us this very same principle. This very same principle. Now, it gets pretty personal. And this is to every single Christian. Hebrews 13, 
Verse 7, remember, it says, remember or bring to mind or know, bring to mind, it says, remember them which have the rule over you or who are the guides over you. Remember those who lead you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. Now this means not any who pretend to lead or who proclaim themselves leaders, but who actually lead by the speaking of the word of God. This is the true shepherd of God. Keep in mind. Now, why would he say to put that in your mind? Why would we be reading in Hebrews an exhortation to have this in mind or to know this if it wasn't for the fact that we might not have it in our minds or that we might not know this? You see, it's not everyone who proclaims himself to be our leader or not everyone who's appointed our leader or not everyone who stands in the leader's position uh, that is our leader or that is our shepherd here, here below, but it is the one who speaks the word of God to us. And this is something we need to keep in mind or be mindful of. Be mindful of. Be mindful of those who have the rule over you or who are the guides, literally, who are guiding you, who speak to you the word of God. Keep in mind those who are guiding you according to the word of God as it's spoken to you. Keep them in mind and follow, it doesn't say follow them, whose faith follow. Because of course they're speaking the word of God to you and that is a declaration of their own faith as a declaration of their own faith. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, in a pastoral epistle, he says it must first found in a steward that he's faithful. Well, how is a steward of the word of God found to be faithful? He is faithful to the word of God. So how do you know who to follow? You need to put your mind on those who guide you according to the word of God. And that wouldn't be commanded of you if that were some automatic thing. You just look it up in a little booklet and it says, here's the senior pastor or here's the top banana, whatever he may call himself, so I follow him. No, you need to be mindful of those who guide you according to the spoken word. And if you don't have anybody guiding you by speaking the word of God to you, then you need to find a local church where somebody will guide you according to the scriptures. And that won't be necessarily easy, but I have never met anyone who set their mind upon that, that God did not give them a clear direction and lead them into a congregation of believers who purposely, intentionally wanted to follow the word of God and that they could find a shepherd somewhere that would speak to them the word of God and whose faith they could follow. Now you have to be careful in all of this because not all serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Many serve their own bellies. So the Lord won't command you to do this, to keep in mind those who they are if there aren't those for you to put in mind. They're there for you. And it also says whose faith follow. You see, you follow their faith. That means they must be men of faith men of faith, considering, and here's the thought, not only do you put them in mind, but you consider the end of their conversation or their manner of life. What is the end of their manner of life? Here, this should be a good end at the judgment seat of Christ. That doesn't mean successful in the world. That doesn't mean admired in the world. It means their manner of life is going to lead them to a joyful time at the judgment seat of Christ. That's Hebrews 13, verse 7. Now we move down to the 17th verse of the same chapter. 
where it says, submit yourselves or obey. That is to say, this word obey has to do with submitting or being persuaded by. It's a state of mind. It's the inaugural state of mind that you bring to someone who is guiding you. You bring a state of mind that is impressionable indeed, that is submitted, that is to say, you are persuadable by the person. You're persuadable. That doesn't mean that you end up being persuaded. It just means that you're persuasible or persuadable. So it says obey them. Now this does not mean do what exactly what they tell you. This is not like children obey your parents in the Lord. It's not like that at all. The church of God should never operate that way. A man should rule in his home, but guide in the church. So here it says, submit yourselves to them who are the guides over you. Or be persuaded, actually literally it reads this way, be persuadable by them who are the guides over you and submit yourselves. And submit yourselves. That is, bring yourself under that guidance. Take the guidance. For they watch for your souls. They are watching out for your life. Now, at a given time in the Christian life, we all need guidance. Even those who are the guides over us have at some time needed guides over them. But there are times when Christians mature to the point, Christian men mature to the point, and they're called of God to be under shepherds of God, where they are qualified to be the guides over others by articulating the Word of God to them and giving them guidance according to the Word of God and their own faith, holding faith in a good conscience. And of course the Apostle, as the one who went before, as the prototypical sinner, he shows us exactly that manner of life. Of course, those who heard the Apostle have to consider the end of his manner of life. That was Hebrews 13.7, considering the end, or that where that's going to take, where that manner of life is going to take that brother. And we know what Paul's manner of life took him to be surely rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, he knew there was a crown of glory laid up for him at the end of his life. Well, here now, be persuadable to them that are the guides over you. Submit yourselves, put yourselves under that guidance, for they watch out for your life or your soul. Somebody has to look after the lives of the believers. And God raises up in churches, not necessarily hires them. It's not necessarily the guy that man thinks that it is, but God will raise up if the churches will allow it. God will raise up right there in local churches shepherds over the flock, guides. And of course, if a man desires to be a shepherd over the flock, if a man desires to have oversight over the flock, the scripture says he desires a good thing and he needs to be helped along in that pursuit because, brothers and sisters, we never have too many who have their eyes open who can really look after the flock. And of course, that's the problem with the condition not only today, but it was the problem in Corinth, is that the apostle was looking after the flock, but in the flock there were those who were looking after their own bellies and not looking after the flock against enemies, but milking the flock, fleecing the flock, and so forth. This is the Christianity that the Bible writes about. This is the one that we have. And don't you say, not in my town, not in my church. This is written to every Christian for all times. These are the things that if we don't do, we're going to have bad results. And all around where we look, we have the bad results. That means we're not doing these things. So here it says, they watch for your souls. We're at Hebrews 13:17, as they who must give account. 
And now we see the awesome responsibility of the one who is an overseer in a local church, the one who looks out for the sheep. He's going to have to give account, not just for himself, but he's going to have to give account for the sheep that were under his care. And that's an awesome responsibility. It's too bad that more men who aspire to the privileges and to the respect of this exercise don't aspire to the work of this exercise because here it is, they have to give account. Now the Lord Jesus Christ gave an account. He told his father right before he went to the cross, he said, of those that you've gave me, I haven't lost any of them except the son of perdition. And of course that was Judas who were never really given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course he's the good shepherd and he said, nobody can pluck us out of his hand. As an under shepherd, therefore, there are those who are nominated by God who are called of God to be his under-shepherds, to speak the word of God, to lead a flock, large or small, generally small. By the way, the flock of God is called a little flock, so all this big church business, you'll see that this work doesn't go on. That's because it takes a lot of effort. But the under-shepherd himself, brother, preaching brother out there, you who are taking a position of elder in a local church, or fashion yourself to be a leader in the church, you're going to give an account. And here he says to every other believer, you submit yourself so that when that one gives an account, he may do it with joy and not with grief. Because if he's grieved by you, if his account becomes grievous, giving an account to the Lord about you, that is not going to be profitable for you. And let me just say a word here about husbands and fathers. Because husband, father, you're going to give an account for your wife, and you're going to give an account for your children. And you're not going to be able to complain to the Lord with proper integrity and a good conscience, well, she didn't want to go along, she had better ideas, I didn't want to have to tell her this or that. You're going to give an account for your wife, and you're going to give an account for your children. And the very least you can do is discharge your own conscience, keep a clear conscience, and discharge yourself by your manner of life and by your manner of speech in their sight so that you can acquit yourself at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, that's what verse 14 means. Sure, he doesn't say all of this, but we have the whole scriptures to look at to understand the implication that we are your rejoicing here below even as you are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a wonderful truth. And by the way, it's an important truth to realize that our stature and standing at the judgment seat of Christ, though we're going to give account for our own deeds as well, uh, we're not going to be alone in that. It's going to be a judgment that encompasses our Christian relationships as well as our own personal life. And the way that we have related to others according to the grace of God, according to the will of God and the purposes of God is going to be a major subject at that time. And you're going to be rewarded, good or evil, according to the way you've conducted yourself in this matter. Well, we're going to come back and look at Paul's defense of why he didn't come and see the Corinthians. Apparently, he's being accused of things there in the local church. We'll come back in a minute after this announcement. Stay with us, will you? I'm John Malone, and this is BibleStudy.net. Well, I feel like I've unburdened myself of uh, that discussion of the responsibility of 
those who follow and the responsibility of those who lead, the responsibility of those who shepherd, and the responsibility of those who hear the word of God. But let me now say also this as a word of caution. These Corinthians are examples for us. The epistles here are written for our benefit, and it was the perverse nature of the Corinthians, and it's the perverse nature of the rest of us to follow wrong leadership. We seem to, if men mistreat us, if they take away from us, if they smite us on the face, we tend to follow after wrong leadership. That's because we're wrong people. So we must be spiritually minded to follow right spiritual leadership. And once again, I'll give you caution that you have no excuse for following wrong leadership. Now we come to the 15th verse of 2 Corinthians 1, and we're going to move along a little more quickly here for the remainder of this time that we have. We read first, And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that you might have a second benefit, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. Now here the apostle points out, look, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, I'm on my way to Judea, but my intention was, in coming from Ephesus to Macedonia, was to come through your parts. It was to come through Corinth and then go into Macedonia, and then to come back out of Macedonia on my way to Jerusalem, and to come back and visit you again. So it had been my intention to see you actually twice. That's how I was minded. Now, uh, here he says, uh, this was my mind to come to you two times so you might have another benefit or a second benefit. Now, the first benefit, of course, was when he began the church. We have no evidence that he ever got back there, but he was minded to do that. It was his wish, it was his desire to bring them more grace from God by visiting them again. Apparently, he has to defend himself for not coming. There are those who said, well, he said he'd come and he wouldn't or whatever, and they're probably accusing him of being insincere or of using guile on them. He never intended to come. He just talked like that, so forth. And so he has to defend himself, and here's how he does it. He said, look, it was my desire to come to you, not only once, but again, and have you help me on my way along to Judea, to be brought along by you, or helped along in my way towards you. This was what I intended to do. But, of course, what happened to him is he couldn't find Titus. Titus was supposed to come back to him from Corinth and meet him. He couldn't find Titus, and so he got deterred from doing that, according to the grace of God, of course, because now he has to write this second letter, and God kept him from getting to Corinth uh, so that this second letter would be written so we'd have it. But uh, here now he says, When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness? I mean, was I just kidding? Here he says, think I was just kidding? And you see he's answering... He's answering a charge. And the answer to this question is no, of course, he wasn't just saying that. That's what he's being charged with here. That's why he has to write the answer. You're just saying you'd come, but you never intended to come. He said, there are the things that I purpose. Do I purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? Now, we have a hard time reading this, but here's the sense of it. Here's the sense of it. He said, was I just purposing according to the flesh, saying, yeah, I'll come see you, and I never really meant it? Like we say to people, well, I'll see you later, or hope to see you soon, and we don't really mean it. It's just a greeting. It's just a nice thing to say. It's part of what a friend of mine calls cordialism. We don't mean it. Well, the apostle said, that's not the way I was talking to you. I wasn't using lightness. 
I wasn't being my changeable self according to the flesh. I intended it that there was not with me both yes and no. That's what he's saying here, that with me there should be yay, yay, and nay, nay, or the ambiguity that is such an art form here below today. The apostle didn't denying that he was ambiguous. He denied that he was saying yes and no at the same time. Sometimes I get into conversations with people and I'll ask them a simple question and they'll go on and on a bit. And that's okay to go on and on a bit, but they don't answer the simple question. So I have to ask them now, was that yes or no? If the question was a simple yes or no. And here the apostle saying, do you think with me there was both yes and no? I mean, the answer to that question, of course, is no. And he says, verse 18, as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. Now, let me tell you, it gets a little bit tense when you try to require today a man to be yes or no, straightforward. It gets a little bit tense because ambiguous people try to maintain their ambiguity. That is so that as you pin them down on what they actually say, they have what we call plausible deniability. And so they make all kinds of implications in what they say, and you say to them, now are you saying that I'm a liar? And they say, I didn't say that. Well, no, you didn't say that, but everything that you did say drew me to this conclusion. Why don't you just come right out and say you're not telling the truth? Well, or such things as that. We like the ambiguous statement, I didn't say that. Well, what did you say? Well, you heard it, go figure it out. No, why don't you just make it simple? Let's be very clear so that there's no ambiguity here. That's how the apostle was. And, of course, the fact that he was unambiguous in his approach and he was guileless in his approach and sincere in his approach, didn't stop those who accused him of things because they accuse him of being like they are. Just like Romans 2 teaches us, the sinful man, the thing that he judges in others, he does that very thing. So here now, he says, But God is true, our word toward you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, this is now Second Corinthians 1, verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. He said, Listen, we didn't preach with ambiguity to you. When we preach the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and this here now, Timotheus and Silvanus, are just different forms of the word Silas and Timothy. You remember Silas is the companion that Paul picked when he and Barnabas parted companies and went their separate ways. Barnabas took his nephew, John Mark, who chickened out in the work, and Paul took Silas, a prophet from Jerusalem, and Silas traveled with Paul. That's Silvanus here, and Timothy, who is called Timotheus here. It was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. He said, listen, when we preached Christ among you, you've heard us preaching, we're pretty direct, we say what we think, we make it clear, we're not ambiguous people who give speeches so that each one can go away thinking that the speaker agrees with him. And there's a manner of speech like that. I've heard it very many times. In fact, I've often heard uh, preachers uh, give clear messages for the first part of their preaching and then undo it all at the end to make everybody happy so that each one can go away saying, he told me what I wanted to hear or what I thought I was going to hear. Verse 20, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. And of course, here he's saying, God is direct, his promises are true, there's no ambiguity here with God. Another place in the epistle of James, uh, we're told that there's no variableness or shadow of turning with God. 
He's very clear, he's very direct, and his promises are yea, they're not yea and nay. Now, verse 21, Now he which establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. Here he now claims God's authority for his work which he has to do. He shouldn't have to do it again. He shouldn't have to do it with the Corinthians. But there are those there who are troubling the others and trying to destroy his relationship here with the church. If you've ever had your spiritual relationship destroyed with believers in a church, you understand exactly what he's up against here. He's up against the unhappy circumstance of having to defend himself so that his ministry with those who hear him will continue. Now, many preachers are in this situation and have faced this situation, and I suppose there are not a few preachers who listen to this broadcast from time to time. And brother, let me just say, it's a shame that you have to do this, but go ahead and defend your ministry in Christ so that you can continue to reach those who actually hear, those who actually hear. And by the way, brothers and sisters who listen, let me tell you that those brothers, those shepherds who are really doing the work of God, when I spoke about the spiritual relationship between you and them, I can assure you they were cheering because these are things that preachers just have a difficult time saying to their congregations. Well, in any case, now, here he says, Look, the one who established us with you uh, in Christ and has anointed us or Christed us. This is now the anointing that we hear about every once in a while today, but we hear it misapplied. This is the anointing that starts on the head and flows down over the body and encompasses both the apostle here and those that hear him. This has the anointing, but it's not their own anointing. It is the anointing that is of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Christ. He is the anointed one. And the oil flows down over the body, including these who minister to the body, these prominent parts, such as the Apostle Paul, or more prominent members, who are used, by the way, to give honor to the less prominent members. And that is what ministry is, giving honor to the less prominent ministers by the one authorized prominently to minister. Now as we come to the end of the last couple of verses here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as we come to the last three verses, uh, we have some important things to note, and we'll use the remainder of our time to look at them. He says, now the one that established, uh, verse 21, established us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us. And when he says us here in this sense, he means him and them, and sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now this is teaching that is more fully described and fleshed out, as it were, more fully and thoroughly explained in the epistle to the Ephesians. But we have important truth here. We have the sealing of the believer and the corresponding deposit that is given to us, or the corresponding possession that we have due to that sealing. And the sealing of the believer is the new nature that is given to us, the witness of the Holy Spirit to us. Here it is, the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now, here he says, this is how God has sealed and given us an earnest. That is to say, he has given us a deposit. This is the Erebon. This is the down payment. We can find it referenced here. We find it referenced in Ephesians, the first chapter. This is the pledge that God has given. We know it as a down payment. And this is the down payment, a small amount down, for the full payment that is assured by God in the future. 
So when we make a down payment, maybe we never come back and we forfeit our down payment because we're unfaithful and we don't do what we say. But that's not God. God gives us a down payment of the new nature. That's what we have. The operation of the Spirit of God in our hearts. This is what we have today. It is a deposit. It is a down payment. It is the assurance that we'll get the full benefit later in our resurrection bodies. So today we have a true foretaste and an enjoyable down payment. You can use that down payment however you want to. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We have this marvelous, what's called here, the down payment of the Spirit in our hearts. Well, that's where faith is. Faith is in the heart. With the heart, man believes. And so what we have today, friends, is we have the new nature, which is pliant to faith, which is positive to the Scripture, which is responsive to the external witness of the Scripture, and which is able to believe and add from faith to faith and to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he now names this marvelous nature of the Corinthians that they have, that they've believed, and he begins to sow to it, and he depends on the responsiveness of the new nature to the Scripture. And at the end of the day, my preaching friend, that's all you can do. That's why you can plow in hope, and you can preach in hope. And that's why when you climb up into a pulpit, or whether you sit down at a desk to talk to somebody, or even if you're in front of a radio microphone, you can do it with hope, because there is the new nature in the believer that is responsive to the Word of God. So he explains that to them, and then he gives now the brief explanation, after finding Titus, why he didn't actually come to Corinth, and instead is writing this letter, and here it is in verses 23, Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul, or upon my life, that to spare you I have not yet come to Corinth. This corresponds to what he said in 1 Corinthians. He said, When I come, shall I come with a rod, or shall I come with a spirit of meekness? Of course, he would prefer coming in the spirit of meekness. He would prefer coming in happy fellowship. He doesn't want to have to come in there with a rod and get into all manner of spiritual fights and war around the believers. He'd rather that they settled their issues, that they became responsive to the Word of God, and that they found their way into the grace of God that was for them. So here he says, I call God for a record that the reason I haven't come to you yet is not because I don't intend to or I hate you or I don't care about you or I'm too busy or whatever they're saying about me, but instead I came because I wanted to spare you. I did not want to have to come with the conditions that are extant in your church. Verse 24, for not for that we have dominion over your faith, but we are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. Now here's another important thing. The apostle said, look, I don't want to rule over your faith. I want you to have your own faith for yourself. I want to be helper of your joy. I want to help you enjoy the Christian life. I want to help you enjoy the Word of God, because it's by faith that you stand So I don't want dominion over your faith, or when I'm gone, you'll fall down. This is the kind of instructor that we need to follow. This is the pattern preacher of the Word of God. This is the pattern. This is our example. He doesn't rule the faith of others. He helps their joy, and he preaches the Word of God because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We'll hear some more in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 next time. I'm John Malone, and this is BibleStudy.net.